Welcome to The Experts Speak, a product of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thank you for listening. Susan Cabot has been treating and writing on the topic of autism for many years. She is now with Nova Southeastern University in Florida, and she kindly agreed to talk to us about autism and some of the newer concepts and some of the older problems and the like. Dr. Cabot, thank you so much for being with us. You're very welcome. I'd like to talk a little bit to start about the history of autism because I think sometimes it has become confused. Once upon a time, there was a separation between autism and Asperger's. The separation disappeared. So can you give us a little historical overview, please? Sure. Autism was first recognized in 1943 by a child psychiatrist at Johns Hopkins named Leo Connor. He looked at 11 cases that he saw in his practice and saw some commonalities. And he was really the first person to put this group of children together who showed signs of what we now, of course, are calling autism. Since that time, autism has gone through a number of changes, reconceptualization in terms of what it actually is. And those changes have been reflected in the development of the DSM. At one point, it was thought to be childhood schizophrenia. And we know, of course, that really there's not a relationship between autism and schizophrenia outside what you would find in a, in a normal population in terms of co-occurrence. Then it became kind of its own thing and went through a number of different names so that it was pervasive developmental disorder. Then there were subcategories under it, including the one that you referred to, Asperger disorder. And the current conceptualization in DSM-5 is really that there's only one disorder and that that disorder represents a very wide variety of individuals. And the term is autism spectrum disorder, and that is singular to represent that it's one disorder and people are all lumped together. When we talked about having kind of the three disorders that now make up the spectrum, which were autistic disorder, Asperger disorder, and pervasive developmental disorder not otherwise specified, the research did not support a differentiation between people who had high-functioning autism and people who had Asperger's. And that's why that differentiation went away in the latest version of the DSM. So it's become more complex in the sense there's a broad spectrum, but it's actually reflective more of the data that we see. Do we know what causes it? Is it an accident of birth? Is it a result of some other triggering event? Do we know where it comes from? And I guess attached to that is how common is it? The easier question to answer is really the current prevalence rate. The Centers for Disease and Control and Prevention have done a series of studies through their Autism and Developmental Disabilities Monitoring Network, and every two years they release new prevalence rates of eight-year-old children. And the reason they picked eight-year-old children is because they figure by that time the children have been in school for several years, and that gave the educational system a chance to pick up children who might have been missed earlier on. The newest prevalence rate is actually continuing to go up in that we now have one in 159. 
who are on the autism spectrum. And those numbers have really increased drastically over the past 20 years. We were looking originally at four to five per 10,000 children, making it a very low incidence disorder. You know, if you think about a regular elementary school that maybe has 700 students, you're talking probably 13 or 14 children. It's become a very well-known and more common disorder. Because we're diagnosing it differently, or is it that there really is an absolute increase in the prevalence? Do we know? I think we really don't have all of that information. I think that certainly the recognition of a much broader spectrum of people having autism is contributing to the increase in numbers. The research in terms of causation has really focused on the genetics area and the environmental area and really the kind of combination of a genetic environmental interaction. And we are seeing many more families now that have two children diagnosed on the spectrum. And the the research is telling us that if you have one child with autism, there's a likelihood of 18% that your second child is going to have that disorder also. We're also seeing just pragmatically a number of families where generally a father may actually be diagnosed at the same time that a child is being diagnosed. So we definitely have a lot of evidence for a genetic component. We don't know exactly what gene, one gene. We have a lot of different areas that the genetics research is showing are can be impacted. And so it's not as clear as there's an autism gene. There are many genes that are related to autism. Is it worldwide? Does, do these numbers hold worldwide? Or once again, do we not have those statistics? Well, I think it is pretty much worldwide. The studies that we have from different countries are really in line, or developed countries, I should say, are really in line with what we're seeing here. There's always been a question about whether higher SES families have more autism, but I think that's really related to the earlier diagnostics or better, more alert families able to follow through on finding answers to what they're seeing in their child. Just as Lee O'Connor's first cases were more well-to-do families who were seeking care from a psychiatrist. You used the term SES a moment ago. What does that mean? The socioeconomic status, the oh, okay. uh, income level of the family. When do the symptoms begin to alert? When? What signs are there that should suggest either to the parents or perhaps to schools that their child is on a different developmental course? Age of diagnosis is definitely going down. We are confident in the diagnostic of a child that's 18 months old for someone who's pretty familiar with autism. And we're getting calls from families now of 15 month olds where families either have recognized themselves, maybe because they already have a child on the spectrum, or the child's just really so different from a typically developing infant. But it's definitely going down at this point. Now, there are disparities in terms of recognition in black and Hispanic families. Those children are still being diagnosed at a later age than white children are. But we are beginning to see children being entered into therapies 
different types of programs in the toddler years, which is really great because we do have a body of research that shows that early intervention really has a big impact on many of these children. What are some of the manifestations? What, what behaviors, if we can put them into a cluster, if possible, do parents look at and say, oh, my God, my kid is doing this and my neighbor's child is not doing this? What should trigger the thought in a parent's mind? Some of the earliest symptoms are things like a child who does not respond to his or her name when you call a child. A child who doesn't follow your point when you see an airplane overhead and say, oh, an airplane, and point the child who doesn't understand that your point is telling him kind of to look up at that airplane and share that experience with you. That's called joint attention. And generally that develops at about 9 to 15 months. And So when you have a child who doesn't do that type of thing, that's one of really the earliest indicators. We're really looking at symptoms or behaviors in the area of social communication. Someone who kind of you don't feel is with you. They don't make eye contact. Sometimes very young infants will do things like not kind of mold to your body, kind of turn their body away from you when you're feeding. Children who cry and can't be consoled. Those are very, very early signs. And then, of course, the more lack of communication development. They may be very, very quiet as babies, not babble, not coo. That's absent. The unusual kind of use of play materials, so lining up toys instead of actually playing with them, spinning the wheels of a truck instead of making the truck go. Those are also very early signs. One of the things that bothers me, frankly, is quite often I'll hear people refer to other people as he's on the spectrum. I really don't know what that means in particulars. And it almost has, I, I hate to say this, but it almost has a pejorative flavor to it. Do you bump up against a lot of stigma and shame and the notion that my kid's on the spectrum? Am I making sense with this question? That was actually one of the kind of pushback to the change in the diagnostic terminology. I think that when Asperger's was a diagnostic term, that was almost kind of a badge of honor. And I think families were much more comfortable to get a diagnosis of Asperger's versus autism because I think they felt that being smart was better than having more traditional autism, which was seen as kind of lower functioning. And they kind of lost that status when the terminology changed. And they were very against that. I think that it's become very, you know, it's become so common. And when we talk about one in 59, it is really common. In some ways, I would think maybe even the opposite of you because the diagnosis opens the door. Diagnosis of autism opens the door to things like insurance coverage. Florida has an insurance law. It doesn't cover everybody because it doesn't cover small employer health insurance. It just covers larger employee health insurance. It doesn't cover self-insurance. But clearly, Medicaid is covering applied behavior analysis therapy for people with autism and other therapies through private insurance, too, so that it's almost better to be able to get that diagnosis because there are definitely more doors 
open to you. And I think that families almost see autism as a much better diagnosis to get than something like intellectual disability. I think that autism kind of offers more hope because of the broader spectrum and the stories of people saying, well, I didn't talk till I was five and now look at me, I have a PhD. So I think that in some ways it is a more hopeful diagnosed. I would kind of disagree. Oh, that's fine. Of, I'm glad uh, the I'm, way people feel about it. I'm, I'm glad for the disagreement because we need to have that perspective and I cannot disagree with you at all. So let's jump ahead a little bit. What happens to autistic kids when they grow up? Do they go to school? Do they work? Do they get into legal problems at the same rate as other people? What are the manifestations of a grown-up autistic, or is that complicated by the range of the manifestations of the autism? I think that it is complicated. It's interesting. I still run into people who don't realize that adults also have autism. They see it as a childhood disorder and are not able to kind of wrap their heads around the fact that Yes, these are children who grow up, and of course they grow up very differently because of the widespread. Our knowledge of autism, because we've changed the definition, has changed the characteristics of the people falling within the spectrum. And so now it used to be that most people with autism also fell in the intellectually disabled range. Now that's not the case. We have about half falling within the intellectually disabled but more and more are being educated in general education settings, and a number are also being able to go on to university programs, just like other individuals. Now, the issue is really that in order to be successful on a university campus, you need a lot of skills in terms of problem solving and planning and organizing, which continue to plague people on the spectrum, even if they are very bright cognitively. And therein lies the rub because it's all about preparing for the next stages of life, preparing for employment, preparing for independent living in the community. And these are areas that continue to be very challenging. And so we have very low rates of employment. We have a lot of underemployment. There are many people with autism walking around with college degrees, even with PhDs, who are not able to hold a job or who are doing something that is could really be considered quite a bit different than what you would expect for someone from that educational level to be able to participate in. Can we fix that if we have interventions that are early enough, are good cognitive behavioral therapies, social structuring? Is it, is it fixable? I think that some of it is fixable. I think that some of it has to come from educating employers and industry, really working to make good matches between a person's strength and areas of need and employment choices. I think that we might not want to put someone with autism in a work environment where there's a lot of customer interaction or dependence on coworkers working together, but areas like computer technology, 
possibly accounting, engineering, architecture, things that may require a little less and really build on the incredible strengths that some people with autism have would definitely make for better outcomes. We're beginning to see companies like Microsoft really do targeted outreach. I think that as the employment is getting much tighter because we have such low unemployment, that companies are reaching out to populations that they would not necessarily have hired in the past and trying to figure out how to use these people's strengths in a way that they can also provide the support that the person needs to be successful. So I I think that we're beginning to see some changes in this area, and I would hope that those would continue as employers get comfortable with this population. Very, very promising by uh, the extension of this. What about their own personal lives? Do they marry? Do they date? Do they socialize otherwise? Are they comfortable doing that? Or again, is that related to some of the social skills that they may or may not have? We want them to have normal lives in all domains as much as possible, do they? I think it's like everything else. I think some do and some struggle when they do. You're seeing support groups popping up for spouses of people with autism, which I think is an amazing thing that we never would have thought about in earlier times. So that's very also hopeful. But again, I think that when you think about what marriage entails or those intimate social relationships entail, It is an area that is very difficult. That doesn't mean that people with autism don't want it. They do want it, but the skills really aren't there. And it is interesting that many of them don't want someone like them. They want someone who is better looking and smarter and more successful. And so I think it becomes very difficult because they really don't have necessarily the skills. And so you'll see people get accused of stalking or other behaviors that are inappropriate socially because they don't have those skills and they're really not malicious in their intent. They just don't know how to do it correctly. On the whole, it sounds as if the future for this group of people is getting better, shall we say, day by day. This is all very encouraging information and and, and, and insight. So pleased to hear it is what I'm trying to say. I'm so pleased to hear it. Well, I think it's a long road ahead of us, but I think that as we see more and more families and employers and educators all having more experience with this population, and we're beginning to develop more strategies that are effective that do make a difference, that do help individuals build skills as well as reduce some of the maladaptive behaviors. I think we do, for at least a percentage of these individuals, we do have much better outcome, and I think we'll continue to see that. There will still be the group, I think, that is very complex in terms of low-functioning cognitive abilities, severe behavioral issues, co-occurring complications, either, you know, blindness and autism, deafness and autism, or chronic health conditions and autism, mental health conditions and autism that are going to make it very difficult still for a segment of this population. This has been extremely informative, and I want to thank you very much. Susan Kellett is a professor at Nova Southeastern University, and she has worked and is obviously quite knowledgeable about the world of autism. What can I say? Thank you very, very much for joining us. It was instructive and, 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 a, 
and a good look into a world that I don't think a lot of people, maybe unless they've had it in their families, I don't think a lot of people take that close of look. Thank you so much for being with us. You're very welcome.